0: to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. the The bombing of Guernica in Spain by the German Condor Legion on 26 April 1937 was one of the first uses of modern aircraft to bomb a town. The bombing of Guernica captured the world's imagination. The headline of the New York Times the next day clumsily covered what had happened. Perhaps there were no words then for what the German Condor Legion had done. Journalist G.L. Stier struggled to do the impossible, to describe to his readers something that no one had ever seen before, and perhaps their imaginations would run riot. His headline, in many ways, tells it all. Historic Basque town wiped out. Rebel flyers, machine gun civilians. Waves of German planes fling thousands of bombs and incendiary projectiles on Guernica. Behind lines as priests bless peasants filling town on market day. G.L. Steer, arriving the day after the air raid, saw the consequences of the events described him by survivors and clearly people from the Republican propaganda ministry, judging from the whoppers that were contained in his news report. Luckily, or probably not, I live in a world where those sites are commonplace. Let me tell you what happened leading up to that day and on that day. It seems a for me to quote here from the story published in the New York Times just over 60 years after the attack on Guernica on 28 April 1997 about what happened in Germany on that 60th anniversary. The story was headed Germany admits guilt over Guernica. It read Germany today acknowledged its guilt in the destruction of the Spanish town of Guernica 60 years ago, but stopped short of apologizing for the attack, the precursor of the devastation of European cities by air raids in World War II. The raid on April 26, 1937, conducted by the German Condor Legion to aid the nationalist forces of General Francisco Franco in the Spanish Civil War, killed some 1,000 people and inspired Picasso's searing painting named for the town. In a ceremony commemorating the victims, the German ambassador to Spain, Henning Wegener, read a message of mourning and reconciliation from President Roman Herzog. I would like to confront the past and would like to explicitly admit to the culpable involvement of German pilots. Mr. Herzog's message said, but it contained no apology. Last week, the German parliament rejected a motion to discuss the raid. Opposition members had wanted Germany to express its regret formally, but Chancellor Helmut Kohl's coalition voted against a debate. It was a strange statement, it wasn't an apology, but it was curious why Germany admitted guilt. It certainly did the bombing, but that was in the midst of a war that was already underway. Heck, it was one of those rare wars in the 1930s that Hitler didn't start. It was actually probably more appropriate that Spain apologised to itself for having a civil war in which that attack had happened. Using the opportunity presented by the Spanish Civil War and the fact that both sides were well-equipped with modern weapons, Wolfram von Richthofen was in the process of learning the lessons he needed to make himself the world's leading master of tactical air operations, providing close and mid distance support directly in aid of ground operations. It was his call to bomb the town of Guernica. With all due respect to Richthofen, making the decision to bomb Guernica was not rocket science. In fact, for years before going to Spain, Richtofen had indeed been closely involved with promoting Werner von Braun's rockets and Hans von Ohain, who went on to develop Germany's first jet engines. Goernica was a small town of five to 7,000 people. It wasn't a city as described by the media of the day. At the time of the bombing, Guernica was located just behind the front lines of the Republican Basque army. You only had to look at a map showing the positions of the opposing armies in relation to the town of Guernica to realise Guernica's importance. The Basque army was being pressed hard by the nationalist forces. There was a bridge in Guernica, a bridge that the Basque army needed to escape destruction by the Nationalist Army. The town was also an important road junction, especially important because it was vital as part of the escape route for 23 battalions of Basque army troops located east of Guernica. If you assume that these battalions, after being engaged in fighting for some time, had a current strength of about 400 men each, as opposed to to their full establishment strength of, say, 600, then you're talking about 9,200 fighting men, a significant part of the strength of the Basque army. If the route through Guernica could be closed, the Basque forces would be hindered, possibly prevented from retreating to what were understood to be the heavily fortified defences around Bilboa. The bombing, as a prelude to an attack by the Nationalist ground forces, offered the chance of cutting off all of these forces, resulting in their destruction. In addition to these forces, in the line defending against the Nationalist army, there were at least two Basque army battalions stationed in Guernica. These were the 18th Loyala Battalion and the Sazeta Battalion. The nationalists were also concerned that the Basques might turn Guernica itself into a fortified position. By all the rules of international warfare in 1937, Guernica was a legitimate target for aerial attack. It's useful to take a sidetrack here for me to tell you a bit more about the international law of war at this time, and in fact for the whole of World War II. In the 1930s and during World War II, there were some clear international rules dealing with the conduct of war on land and sea. The main ones were the Hague Convention respecting the laws and customs of war on land of 18 October 1907 and the Geneva Convention relative to the treatment of prisoners of war of 27 July 1929 there were no conventions regulating the conduct of aerial warfare. There was little specific guidance on the legal requirements for conducting aerial warfare against an enemy homeland. But having said that, a few principles were generally recognised as applying. The Hague Convention of 1907 had established several rules for protecting civilians in wartime. These had been designed for ground warfare, but they were applicable to aerial warfare, even though no such thing existed when the convention had been drafted and entered into. One principle relevant to air warfare against a city or town was to be found in Article 25. That article forbade the bombardment of an undefended, declared, open city. That was clearly not Guernica with at least two battalions of Republican forces based in the town. Article 23 made it unlawful to attack civilian targets except as required by military necessity. Article 27 listed monuments, churches and hospitals as specially protected facilities. But there were huge loopholes in the rules. It was accepted that military forces, military installations, armaments factories, storage areas, shipyards and rail yards located in a city were legitimate targets for an air force. Attacking them would inevitably mean civilian casualties, which would be unfortunate to say the least, but such casualties would come from the military necessity of bombing what were clearly military targets. The air campaigns of World War I had let this genie out of the bottle. It was terrible news for civilians, but bombing the enemy cities had become a normal part of war leading up to World War II, and then the unquestioned norm. Cities contained many military and industrial targets. Their destruction would make a difference to that country's ability to wage war. As the air power doctrine and air power capability of the major powers evolved in the 1920s and 1930s, and what was seen as the inevitable victory that could be gained by strategic bombing from the air, no nation was prepared to consider the enemy's cities or their vital infrastructure as off limits to aerial bombardment. That was how the American bomber mafia saw the next war being won and so did the British, to avoid the horrors of World War I. Sadly, only if. The British and American airmen who bombed German cities from 1942 to 1945 justified their actions, which included the area bombing campaigns against German cities, approved at the highest political levels to be legitimate, under the rules that justified the enemy economy, as a target of war. The policy pursued in Europe by the RAF and the USAAF to attack the German cities resulted in an estimated 422,000 German civilian dead by 1945. The American bombing campaign against Japanese cities killed 330,000 Japanese before the end of the war, and that took only a fraction of the time that it had taken the British to reach that same number. Bombing had become a whole lot more lethal by the end of the war. The American campaign against Japan included the single most destructive bombing attack in history. And I'm not talking about the atomic bomb. It was the US firebombing of Tokyo in March 1945, which killed an estimated 100,000 Japanese civilians. So when World War II was over, neither the British nor the Americans were going to condemn Wolfram von Richthofen or any other senior Luftwaffe generals for war crimes of bombing of cities in the Spanish Civil War and World War II. So back to the bombing of Guernica. Well before the German attack on Guernica took place, it had been singled out for special attention by von Richthofen because of its importance in the Basque road network. On 25 April, von Richthofen ordered his fighters to attack all traffic on the important Guernica-Bilboa road. Throughout the war, one of von Richthofen's priorities was to attack the rear area logistic links of enemy forces. Von Richthofen made the following entry in his diary on 25 April, the day before the attack on Guernica. Guernica has to be destroyed if we are to strike a blow against enemy personnel and material. This isn't an entry favouring an interpretation that von Richthofen's prime motive for attacking the town was to strike terror into the hearts of the civilian population. In that same diary entry, von Richthofen quoted National Colonel Wigon. Of Franco's staff saying that if his nationalist troops advanced and cut the road south of Guernica and the German aircraft closed the road in the town, we have the enemy in Makina in the sack. This is another comment that supports the military purpose of the attack on Guernica as being the dominant, really the only one. The official German records of the Condor Legion recorded the following. Chief of Staff Lieutenant Colonel von Richthofen reported on 26 April that the Guernica attack was discussed and approved by Colonel Vigon, Möller's Chief of Staff. James Curum, in his biography of von Richthofen, writes, On 26 April, the Germans attacked the town with 43 bombers and fighters and dropped approximately 35 tons of high explosive and incendiaries in a raid lasting more than an hour. Half of the town was destroyed, and there were civilian casualties. A slightly more detailed account of the raid is given by Antony Bivor. It seems to suggest a sinister, evil purpose by the Germans in the way that the attack was carried out, sadistically toying with the civilians of the town. He also says that the attacks, including lulls, went on for about three and a quarter hours, more than three times as long as James Coram said. Bevor says, On the following day, Monday 26 April, at 4.30 in the afternoon, the main bell in Guernica rang to warn of air attack. It was market day, and although some farmers had been turned back at the edge of the town, many had still come in with their cattle and sheep. The refugees from the advancing enemy, together with the town's population, went down into the cellars, which had been designated as refugios. A single Heinkel 111 bomber of the Condor Legion's experimental squadron arrived over the town, dropped its load on the center, and disappeared. But against Bevor's narrative, he notes that two other historians, Sol Sabate and Villaroya, state that three Italian Air Force Savoia marchetti SM-79 bombers had already dropped 36 bombs of 50 kilograms each on Guernica. If that's correct, it makes something of a nonsense of the imputation by Bivor of the sneaky cruelty of the way the Condor Legion attack was conducted. The people had already been attacked. Bivor then says, after that single German bomber left... Most people came out of their shelters, many going to help the injured. Fifteen minutes later the full squadron flew over, dropping various sizes of bombs. People who rushed back into the shelters were choked by smoke and dust. They became alarmed as it was evident that the cellars were not strong enough to withstand the heavier bombs. A stampede into the fields around the town began. Then the Heinkel 51 fighter squadrons swept over, strafing and grenading men, women, and children, as well as nuns from the hospital and even the livestock. The major part of the attack had not even started. At 5.15, the heavy sound of aero engines was heard. The soldiers immediately identified them as trams, the name for the ponderous Junkers 52. Three squadrons from Burgos carpet-bombed the town systematically in 20-minute relays for two and a half hours. Carpet bombing had just been invented by the Condor Legion when attacking the Republican positions around Oviedo. Their loads were made up of small and medium bombs, as well as 250-kilogram bombs, anti-personnel 20-pounders, and incendiaries. The incendiaries were sprinkled down from the Junkers in two-pound aluminium tubes, like metal confetti. Eyewitnesses described the resulting scenes in terms of hell and the apocalypse. Whole families were buried in the ruins of their houses or crushed in the refugios. Cattle and sheep, blazing with white phosphorus, ran crazily between the burning buildings until they died. Blackened humans staggered blindly through the flames, smoke and dust, while others scrabbled in the rubble, hoping to dig out friends and relatives. According to the Basque government, approximately a third of the town's population were casualties, 1,654 killed and 889 wounded although more recent research indicates that no more than two and three hundred died. Those hurrying towards the town from Bilboa had their original disbelief at the news changed by the orange-red sky in the distance. The Palun building and the oak tree were found to be untouched because they had been just outside the flight path, which the pilots had followed so rigidly. The rest of Guernica was a burned skeleton. The aerial attack and the damage it had caused had gone pretty much according to Richthofen's plan. What happened next, with the disappointing follow-up by the Nationalist Army and in the international arena, where how the raid was seen and the unexpected and enormous capital that Hitler turned out to be able to make from the extreme exaggeration that the Republicans made of the attack all went to make Guernica that legend it still is today in most people's minds, that is the people who know anything about history. The next program looks at what happened after the raid and how that guaranteed World War II. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kaldsberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.